Thanks. You can be seated. And so, in a somewhat surprising fashion, uh, as we just read with this story, John begins his story of the public ministry of Jesus. He tells us that this is the first of the signs, the first of the many signs that Jesus performed as he started uh, his ministry. And so we might ask, why? What's going on in this story? You know, this, this notion of signs, John says this is the first of the signs. This is a major deal in the Gospel of John. What the other Gospel writers refer to as miracles or works of power, John refers to as signs. The idea is that Jesus uses uh, physical things, things that you could see or touch, a person healed or water turned to wine, that he uses these physical things as a sign to point beyond simply the, the thing itself towards something greater, towards something that he wants to communicate about himself and the kingdom of God and what's he, what he's doing in the world. And so why would Jesus choose to start his ministry of all of the incredible things that he's going to do? Somebody who's powerful enough to raise the dead, somebody who's going to heal disease. Why would he start in an out-of-the-way rural wedding with a small sign known only to a few people. Further, why would John, you know, John tells us later on in the gospel that Jesus does many, many things that aren't recorded in the gospel, that if he, if he were to write down every miraculous sign that Jesus performed, that uh, it wouldn't just be a one-volume book or a two-volume book, that, but that the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books written if he were to write every incredible sign that Jesus performed. And so we already know that John isn't just working as a journalist, but that he's editing the work of Jesus and picking certain signs told in a certain way so that he tells us so that we might believe and have life, so that his readers might see who Jesus is. And so if you're John and you only have so much length, you only have so many stories to tell, why start here? Why start with Jesus in an out-of-the-way rural wedding fixing what's basically a small catering problem? Why, why tell this story at all? What's it meant to show us? Well, I think that's what we're going to see. Usually, you know, when we come to this story, we come to pretty small conclusions, right? Sometimes we look at this story and we say that this is proof that Jesus likes weddings, right? In the, in the wedding liturgy that I read whenever I perform a wedding, it's uh, that Jesus honored this manner of life by his presence at a wedding in Cana and Galilee. So sometimes we use this to show that Jesus blesses marriage, other times we use it to, see, to look at it and say, see, it's not so wrong to drink wine, right? If Jesus himself turned water into wine and provided it for a party, certainly it's, it's okay, right? So sometimes we use this story to meet some smaller end. But I think what we're gonna see as we look at this story and as we try to understand why John tells it in the way that he tells it, it's that John means to show us that the whole gospel is in this story, that the, the reality that this story points to actually in miniature tells us what we need to know about who Jesus is and what he comes to bring into our world. And so he starts with this sign at this wedding. You know, in a way, every wedding is a sign, right? If in John's mind, a sign is something, a physical thing that points beyond it to a spiritual reality. In a way, every single wedding that we ever attend, that we ever are a part of, is a sign that's put there to point us somewhere beyond it. You know, uh, doing weddings is one of my absolute favorite parts of being a pastor. 
And it's not just for the free meal. Um, It's not just for the great party. It's that I love the privilege of standing with people surrounded by their best friends and their family and yet still somehow in this really intimate moment, them right in front of me. And in those moments when we come together to celebrate a wedding, in some ways, everything else seems to, to dim around it. Right, You can start to believe that this, this moment of joining, this, this love and this celebration, they're surrounding by family and friends, that somehow this wedding is telling the story of something that's true. Right, We start to believe that maybe love and union and friendship and joy and celebration are what's most real and most vital and most true in our world. You know, I had a, an opportunity uh, a few months ago, about a month ago, uh, to celebrate a wedding that was really, really beautiful. Zach and Marissa Whitson, who, who attend this church, got married. Uh, it was an outdoor wedding uh, in Florida in August um, with a pastor who's prone to sweat. And, uh, and yet, so th- we go out there for the day of the wedding. It's gonna be on this, this beautiful porch overlooking the river. And that day, like in so many uh, August afternoons in Florida, it was pouring down rain all day. Just raining, raining, raining. People are coming into the wedding with their umbrellas. They're waiting inside. The, the wedding planner's freaking out, going, are we gonna move it inside? What are we gonna do? The, the bride is doing her deep breathing exercises to try to, to not you know, panic before her wedding. And then right at the, the hour of the wedding, it started to get nice outside. All of a sudden, the rain dried up. People went out and started frantically drying the seats. We come out there, the wedding planner says, if it's possible for you to abbreviate your message, we, you know, do it because we think more rain's coming. Honey, I don't know if you know a lot of pastors, but it's really not possible. Every word, <laughs> every word is chosen just perfectly. Um, but we go out there and it's, it's all of a sudden beautiful, it's cool. And then right as you do the, I now pronounce you man and wife, you may kiss your bride, a ray of sunshine comes in through the clouds People were crediting me with way more of an inside track and inside line to the man upstairs uh, than should be. But it was just this moment where everything else kind of went away and it looked like in that moment, you go, yes, this is what it's about. It's about love and it's about union. It's about joy. It's about intimacy. That maybe this is something true, something permanent, something joyful. Maybe this is what we're made for. And yet there's another voice uh, that comes into our heads and our hearts when we see that kind of love. That kind of laughs at the romantic part of us and says, yeah, 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 but what about that over 50% divorce rate? What about uh, the long loneliness that so many of us feel, whether in singlehood or even loneliness that can plague us in marriage? What about the, the truth that we know that friends don't always come around to support us, to celebrate love and joy? that sometimes they abandon us or betray us? What, what about the other things that we know are also true about life in this world, that love so often is impermanent, that it can so often not be counted on? Which one of those is true? And so this story comes, John's sign comes of Jesus at a wedding. And it's to show us, I believe, that the wedding that the joyful union and love and intimacy is something true and lasting that can be counted on. You know, the, uh, Jean Vanier, who's a, a Catholic priest who started the La Arche Communities, which are uh, a, a worldwide network of uh, homes that care for the mentally disabled. Uh, he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John. And what he says, he says, the point of this story, 
The message of this story is that your longing for love is not a hoax. That your longing for love and union and delight and joy isn't a cruel joke by God. It's not that God put in you this longing for consummation and union and then just said, ha ha, it's not gonna be that. It's gonna be painful and lonely. That this story shows us that your longing for love is not a hoax. That Jesus comes. Over and over in John, he's referred to by this strange word, he's referred to as the bridegroom. That Jesus comes as a groom seeking a wife, seeking us to be joined to in a true wedding, in a true union, that'll never be abandoned, that'll never be broken. So let's look, let's just walk through this story. It starts in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. If you've, if you've noticed, if you've been paying attention, uh, John has this way of giving time markers. But so he says here on the third day, and you might go the third day since what, right? When did he start counting the third day? What, what kind of days is he counting here? And if you, if you count the days that have been counted, if, you know, we've said when we started this, uh, the gospel of John, we said that John 1.1 starts with the words, in the beginning was the word. That John is retelling the creation story from the very, very beginning. That he's retelling the very first days of creation through Jesus. And so if you count up the days, there's, if you count that as the first day, if you count the four days that are spent with John the Baptist, he gives several more day markers. And now on the third day, that leads you with this being the seventh day of John's creation week. So if John's been retelling the story of creation, starting with in the beginning and now ending up on the third day, on the seventh day, it shows that he's, he's telling us something, that this is the day in that creation week that is the Sabbath. This is the end, this is the rest, this is the consummation of God's creative work, the summation of the, of the creation week in the way that John's telling the story. Other commentators pay attention, and I think, I think both are valid, that the third day would also key in the reader to that other time when something happens on the third day in the Gospel of John, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that both of these things point us to the consummation of God's work. And he says that the consummation of that work, the highlight of this new creation week is a wedding. It's a feast, it's a banquet, it's a party. And John isn't the first one in the Bible to say that when the Messiah comes, when, when creation reaches its, reaches its fullness, when God rests from his work, that it will be like a wedding feast, that it'll be like a banquet. Isaiah 25 uh, puts it this way. On this mountain... It's the mountain in Jerusalem. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And so when an original reader came to this moment where it's at the seventh day, it's at the, the highlight, it's at the high point, and now there's a feast, there's a party, and wine is at its center, they would have said, oh, this is, this is John saying that that that, that prophecy, that thing we've longed for, of the feast of the kingdom of God being present here and now. Think about that for a moment. That if the biblical story is to be taken seriously, which of course we believe it is, that you were made, you were created. In fact, the whole world was created for a party. You were made for joy. 
You were made for gladness. You were made for celebration. And that the whole world is moving in that direction. And that one day it'll be consummated in a, in a feast that will last for an eternity. But you were made for joy. You were made uh, to celebrate life with your friends over good food and good drink. That's something uh, about that is woven into the very fabric of the way that God created the world. You know, we um, had a great opportunity as we seek to, to talk and to learn about how we can serve in this community here in Jacksonville. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we celebrated a back-to-school party. We got together with our neighbors and our friends over at One Love uh, Christian Church across the street, and we did a back-to-school party. We were having a block party. It was a great, it was a fun time of just celebrating, of doing what we were made to do, of celebrating life together. Well, our staff uh, had a wonderful visit uh, from a police officer uh, here locally who we were not, we didn't do anything wrong. You don't have to worry about us. Um, but we were talking with her just about ways that we, she runs the local um, police athletic association out of the park nearby. And we were just talking about ways that we can serve in our community. What does the community need? Where do you see opportunities? Uh, what would it look like for a church to be for this community and to serve? And one of the things we mentioned, we said, we had a, we had a party over there at a, at a neighbor church, and we think we could do more of that. We think we could throw block parties and have people come out and we could celebrate. And she was, she was wonderfully excited about the idea. Uh, she said, yeah, that's great. Don't call it a party. Because if you start advertising a party, you know, last week I had to break up a party over here and uh, people were throwing bottles, fights were breaking out, music was too loud. People over here, were, there was another party in this neighborhood where people were selling drugs. That if you call it a party, all of the worst instincts of people are gonna come out and all of the worst uh, desires and appetites are gonna come out. And I thought to myself in a moment, one, okay, that's good advice, right? Find another word. But in another way, how sad. Right? How sad that in our world we take that thing that we're made for, joyful celebration, and when it gets twisted, it becomes drunkenness, it becomes drug use, it becomes uh, escape from the realities of this world in an unhealthy way. But the reason that those addictions can grow, the reasons that uh, the thought of escaping this world uh, through the use of substances, the reason that holds such a, su such a powerful hook for so many is because it touches on something that we were made for. It touches on something that we were actually created to enjoy. But then the enemy twists it and uses it to create addiction, to wreck homes, to wreck lives, to wreck families. But it doesn't mean that the desire, the desire for celebration, the desire for freedom and love and gladness is wrong. In fact, Jesus comes and in this story shows that it's actually a very big part of what we are made for. And so John goes on, uh, Jesus is at this wedding on the, on the third day, and it says in verse three, at this wedding, verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. When the, when the wine ran out. You know, the author, John, doesn't tell us, hey, it was a great party, but the wine ran out. He doesn't say everything was going, going great, however, there was, a, there was a crisis and the wine ran out. What does he say? He says, when the wine ran out. Because the truth is, at every human party, eventually the wine runs out. Right? Every bit of human joy and human celebration, at some point, the lights come on at the bar and it's closing time. At some point, the wine runs out and the party's over. At some point, in every human party, 
we reach the end of the jug. We reach the end of the party and the wine runs out. And the author just says, this is just matter of fact, this is just what happens, right? When the wine runs out, right? Every wedding ends, right? At some point in every wedding, even the biggest and most lavish wedding, at some point the wine runs out and the guests go home and the bride and the groom are just left with each other. They're left with all of their love and all of their gladness and all of their intimacy, but they're also left with all of their sin and all of their selfishness. They're left with the difficult work of figuring out how to love one another, right? They're left with the difficult work of a first year of marriage and figuring out how do we merge these two lives together, right? At some point at the end, at some point at the end of every wedding, you're left with a marriage <laughs> and marriages are a whole lot harder than weddings, right? At some point, the wine runs out. Uh, and that's true across the board in our, in our human lives, right? At some point, uh, no matter how much success you enjoy at work, no matter how much money you're making, at some point, the money runs out. At some point, you have a bad year. At some point, your account gets thinner, right? No matter how much success you have at school, how many A's or B's you rack up, at some point, you reach the end of your intellect. You reach the end of your advancement, right? At some point in all of our lives, the wine runs out. I read this incredible, uh, it was a great piece. It was written uh, for ESPN, the magazine, did an article on Aaron Rodgers, uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And it tells the story of the scene after Green Bay won their Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers had a, just nearly a perfect game. He threw, uh, threw multiple touchdown passes. This should have been the highlight of his, not only his career, but his life as he ordered his entire life around this one goal. You know, every Every kid dreams of being the NFL Super Bowl winning quarterback. As he tells the story of sitting on the bus, having played this great game, his teammates celebrating, champagne popping, he said he knew in his heart, he thought to himself, I can't just do this. This can't be the only thing there is. I've, I've, you know, here he is, I've gotten to the mountaintop and I'm looking around and this can't be it. This can't, my, my life can't have peaked at 25 or whatever age he was. Winning the Super Bowl can't be all that this life has to offer. But at some point, uh, for all of us, the wine runs out. There's echoes in this story of the, the story of the prodigal son, right? Who takes his, takes his father's inheritance, takes his inheritance from his father. He goes off into a far country, squanders his wealth uh, on partying and women. And the story says that when his money had run out, when his money had run out, he started as a servant feeding pigs. And then one moment he looks up from the trough where he's eating the, the pig's food and, and decides to go home to his father. When his money ran out, he goes to the father. When the wine runs out in your life, where do you go? When, when your best efforts end up empty or when you taste success and you realize how hollow it might be, when the marriage that started with such joy and gladness turns towards hardness and isolation, when the wine runs out, where do you go? Well, Mary, Jesus' mother, goes to him. You know, this is interesting. We don't know why she goes to him. We don't know what she had seen in her years of, of living with Jesus. This is the first time she's mentioned. Uh, Mary's never actually named in the Gospel of John. She's called here... Uh, at one point, the mother of Jesus, and at another point, slightly less flatteringly, she's called a woman. Um, she's never named. But somehow of what she's seen and what she knows and what she, what she knows of who Jesus is, she comes to him. When their wine is run out, she comes to him and says, 
There's no more wine. And Jesus gives her this response that, you know, on first reading doesn't sound very Jesus-y, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman? Some translations soften that to dear woman. Um, It should not be softened. Our our translation here gets the force of it right. This is a, um, it's not as hard as it would come across in contemporary English, uh, but it's not a a term of endearment. This is a fairly short, uh, fairly formal way to address your mother. Uh, And so he does, he he refers to her that way. He says, woman, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. What is going on here? Why does Jesus refer to his mother, who we know that he cares about? Uh, At the end of the Gospel of John, he's going to entrust her care uh, to the beloved disciple, to John, the author of the Gospel. He cares about her even at the cross. Why in this moment does he say, don't involve me? My hour has not yet come. It It seems almost jarring in the way that he says it. Where is Jesus in this moment? It seems as though he's talking about something else entirely, right? He doesn't even answer the, he doesn't answer the question directly. He doesn't say yes or no, I will or won't make wine. In fact, he seems to say no, but then, he, then we're gonna see that he says yes. Where is Jesus's mind? Where is Jesus's heart? What kind of question is Jesus answering here that he would talk to his mother this way? And I think, uh, you know, if you've ever been single at a wedding and find yourself off thinking about something else, what are you often thinking about? Maybe it's your own wedding, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's your own wedding. Maybe, you know, even if you are married, you're thinking back to your own wedding. Or maybe if you're single, you're thinking about your own longing to maybe one, one day be wed. You know, Jesus, the gospel of John tells us over and over again, Jesus came as a groom. He came as the bridegroom. He came as the true groom who's come to this world to seek a bride. This isn't a novel language to John. Over and over in the Old Testament prophets, they refer to Israel as the bride of God. That God pursues her, that he allures her, that he wins her to himself. That though she wanders away from him, God continues to pursue his bride. And now in the person of Jesus, God has come to in the flesh pursue a wife, to pursue his bride. And so when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, What he's saying is that my hour, over and over, my hour in the Gospel of John is used to mean the hour of Jesus' suffering. It's the hour of his passion, his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Right, So that Jesus' heart, he's looking ahead to see not only his wedding, not only the bride that he's come to pursue, but also what that pursuit is going to cost him. That ultimately for him, the groom to win a bride is going to cost him his very life. It's going to lead him to the cross. It's going to lead him to lay down his life, his body broken, his blood shed, in order to secure for himself his wife, his bride. And so when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, he's saying this wedding, this wedding is not yet my wedding. It's not yet that thing that I've come here to do. It's not yet the consummation with my bride that I've come to seek. My hour has not yet come. And yet Mary goes to the servants anyway and says, do whatever he tells you. 
Do whatever he tells you. You know, it's interesting. Martin Luther, uh, the great Protestant reformer, uh, preached an entire sermon on these words of Mary. Do whatever he tells you. Luther got an entire sermon out of that. And the way that he did it, uh, the, the point of Luther's sermon on these words from Mary is that this is the exemplary position of faith. That this is what faith says, even in the midst of, a, of seeming resistance, right? Even in the midst of praying, asking Jesus to do something, and it seems all appearances that he doesn't give you, maybe, maybe he didn't give her a hard no, but he certainly didn't give her a yes when he says, my hour has not yet come. And yet still, still, in the, with a lack of evidence, with the lack of any reason to hope, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. This is trust. This is trust that even when you don't understand, even when you don't know what he's gonna do, it's trust in the person and the character of Jesus. Trusting that he can do something, not knowing if he will do something, but trusting that whatever he says, whatever he asks, whatever he wants, will be right. It will be good. It will be for your best. And so we're not gonna do an entire sermon on those five or six words. But Mary appeals to the servants to do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus says, or he draws their attention, there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. You know, uh, in Israelite religion, in the Jewish religion of the time, uh, cleanliness and uncleanliness were a big deal, right? There was an entire system uh, that, was, that, that God gave them to talk about what was clean and what was unclean. This is simply what's, uh, what's able to be used for sacred use and what's not suited for sacred use. What can come into God's presence in the temple and what can't come into God's presence in the temple. Uh, this, there was a time in everyone's life where they touched unclean things. There was a time in everyone's life where they were unclean. And so it's not there to say uh, that the clean things are righteous and the unclean things are sinful. It was there as a reminder to the people that in order to come into God's presence, they required purification. That sin did leave a stain on all of human life that before it could be acceptable to God required some way of purifying. It required it being washed. It required it being made from profane into sacred, from unclean into clean. And so John says that Jesus looks and he sees six water jars that were used for these purification rites. They were used for this kind of ceremonial washing to make things clean. John could hardly be more direct in the way that he's telling this story in showing us that Jesus came to tell us that, that, uh, those old, that old purity-based system of religion, though given by God, has reached its fulfillment has reached its satisfaction in the person of Jesus in that Jesus came to bring a different kind of religion, a different kind of focus in the relationship with God. Now he doesn't come, Jesus's uh, work doesn't say that purity is no longer important, right? He doesn't say, yeah, you know what? In the Old Testament, they were super just legalistic about these things. And so I don't want you to worry anymore about being pure or unpure. That's not the message of Jesus. It's not chill out and don't worry about it. The message of Jesus is no. Purity and impurity, it does matter. Right, sin does leave a stain 
on the human life, on every single bit of the human life that has to get dealt with, right? It has to be washed. So Jesus doesn't come and say, just ignore how am I going to be made pure. But what he does say, what the, what the gospel does show us is that we could never really ultimately be pure through ceremonial washing. We could never ultimately be pure through the washing of sacrifices of animals or through the, the sacred washing through this water. That it takes something else to make us finally and once and for all pure. A final washing to wash away the filth of sin and to make us pure before God. And it takes uh, the washing that he grants us at the cross. The washing by his blood on the cross. That only that gives us a purity that we don't lose. A purity that we never have to second guess. A purity that we don't have to wonder about. Am I clean or am I unclean? Am I righteous or am I unrighteous? That if we've been washed by Jesus, if, we've, if we have a share in his righteous purity, then God looks at us and sees us only as pure. And so we don't have to live with this purity-obsessed religion anymore. We can live with a free conscience. You know, even post-Jesus, uh, Christianity has a tendency sometimes to live with this purity obsession. I remember uh, seeing an ad in Christianity Today once um, that it was an ad for a Christian college that I won't name. Um, and it said the slogan for the college it had a picture of beautiful, clear water. And the slogan for the college was 100% pure since 1956. 100% pure since 1956. Think about what that's communicating, right? We live in a world that's filthy. We live in a world where sin is a problem, but all of that sin since 1956 has been helpfully kept out of our doors and of our gates. Our, our admissions officers have worked diligently to keep sin outside of this 100% pure little group. There's some churches that, that, you, that you feel like, right? That they may as well hang a, a banner over the door that says 100% pure. Right? If you don't walk through these gates certain that you are 100% pure, then don't bother entering. Now that, you know what, that works for this little Christian college. Maybe for a while. Maybe for a while it's effective uh, at keeping people who feel impure out, at keeping those who just never quite feel like they measure up away. Right? But what happens when your lack of purity comes and hits you in the face? What happens when the, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's happened to that college, but I know stuff's happened, right? What, what happens when you finally hook the internet up to the, to the campus computers and all of a sudden you realize the, the pornography pandemic that affects the rest of the country isn't, can't be kept out of the gates of your, your college? What happens when a member of the student body gets pregnant out of wedlock? What happens when the, the leader of the Christian club uh, comes out of the closet? What happens when you realize that our efforts at keeping sin on the outside, just, they don't work, right? We can't do it. Sin isn't a problem out there. Sin is a problem in here that does bubble up and you can't keep it out. And none of the external stuff that we do, none of the external washing can ever get you clean. 
And so for some of us, including myself, it is incredibly good news that Jesus says, you know those purification jars? You know those jars that you use to wash everything unclean out of yourself? You can put those away, right? We can start using them to serve wine because you're not gonna need them anymore, right? Because I'm gonna wash you in a way. I'm gonna wash you in a way through the blood of the only pure one who's ever lived such that if you're in me, if your life is in me by faith, You are pure, you are washed, you're as pure as you're ever gonna get despite your lingering feelings of guilt, your lingering assumptions of shame. You're washed and you're pure and you're set free. And so you can put behind you forever a purity-based religion. You can put behind you this anxiety about whether or not you're pure. Some of you coming to church on a Sunday is incredibly hard. It takes an incredible act of faith to walk through the doors of a church and to believe that you, even with what you know to be, what you know to be the stain of guilt and shame in your life, the stain of sin, to believe that you belong among God's people, to believe that you belong around God's table and in his presence. And Jesus in this this story tells us, you belong, you are invited to the party. If you are washed by Jesus and everyone can be, then you are no less pure or more pure than anybody else, that we are washed and we belong. And so what does Jesus replace these purity washing jars with? Well, he says, go and fill them with wine or go fill them with water. And then when they draw the water out, it's what John calls here simply when he tastes the water become wine. It's an interesting little construct. It was water, now it's wine. They pull it out and it's been remade. That Jesus replaces this purity, anxiety, and obsession with grace, with this free gift, water become wine. And notice what he does. Jesus doesn't just fill it with a little bit of wine. He fills it with 150 gallons of wine, right? We're already told that these people had already had some wine and Jesus just made them another 150 gallons of it. This probably extended what was a two-day party into a three or four-day party. Jesus doesn't just replace, replace it with cheap box wine, right? It's, it, we're told that it, it, he replaces it with the very best wine, that it's the best wine that had been served yet in this party. It is good wine. This is a sign of Jesus's extravagant and abundant grace, that Jesus doesn't just give us a little bit He doesn't just barely cover over our sin. He doesn't just give us a little bit of life and joy. He gives us abundantly, immeasurably more life in him uh, than we ever could have asked for. You know, wine in the Bible is a sign of love and joy. Love and joy. If you ever read uh, the Song of Songs, which is a a book in your Old Testament that we don't read a whole lot, or we've never preached from it, probably should, um, but it's a, it's a love song. And in that story where he says, uh, it's a bride and a groom, says to each other, my belo- I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I've sought my beloved and your love is better than wine to me. Right, when, is, when God is talking to his bride, Israel, he talks to her like she's a garden, a vineyard from which he brings out wine. Right, that wine is a symbol of love and it's a symbol of joy. 
And Jesus comes to pour out abundantly 150 gallons worth of love and of joy into the midst of this party. He comes as the bridegroom. You know, in the, in the ancient world, it was the groom's responsibility to throw the wedding party. Right, so in our, in our day and age, if a, if, a, if a wedding reception ran out of wine, it might reflect badly on the father of the bride, right? We, we look to him to throw the party. It's on his, his checkbook and, uh, and it's, on, it's on him. It looks bad on him if they run out. In this world, it was the groom's responsibility. It reflected something of the groom uh, that he threw the best party, that they had a full, a full party. And so when the wine ran out, this groom faced potential shame he would have been already, you know, not a day into his wedding and already he's not, he's not measuring up. Already he's failing his wife and failing the community. And Jesus comes in, he covers over his shame. He provides abundant wine. He says, I am the true groom. I am the one that your hearts longed for. I'm the one who's come to, to ravish you with love and joy. And so John says, this is the first of his signs. And his disciples saw it and they believed in him. They believe, they came to believe that Jesus really is the one who came to bring the feast that we long for. He really is the groom who came to love us. He is the one who came to pour out the life and joy of the new covenant into our lives. He is the one who came to cover our shame, to wash our guilt, and to make us pure. Will you let the sign point you to what it signifies? That Jesus comes for you as a groom comes after his wife that he comes to love you and to be joined with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in need of the joy and life that only you can bring us. We are empty and worn out and in need of your grace to fill us, to bring life and joy and goodness and gladness and celebration into our hearts, into our community, into our church, into our marriages. Lord Jesus, fill us with the new wine of your covenant. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.